Hi, I'm Karen Elliott, and you're listening to the District B-Sides Podcast, where you'll hear in-depth conversations with council, staff, and community members to take you behind the decisions that are being made on topics that matter to Squamish. Now let's tune in and join the conversation. Welcome, everyone, to District B-Sides. Today, we are hosting a conversation. This was part of Mayor's Drop-In on May 13th, 2021, uh, and the topic was childcare. Uh, it is Child Care Month in the province of British Columbia. And so we brought together uh, folks from all over our community, parents, um, folks from the school district, uh, child care providers, um, uh, child care, early childhood educators, you name it. We had some great minds on the call and it was an opportunity for us to talk about what we've accomplished, what still needs to be accomplished to really start to improve access to childcare in our community. Uh, so this is unedited. This was a Q&A and conversation that we hosted and, um, and we encourage you to contribute to the conversation if you have ideas or suggestions on how we improve access to childcare in the District of Squamish. Enjoy the conversation. So let's jump into this, this conversation and, and this is a very challenging time and and we have to talk about access for sure. And I think Sarah and some of the folks that that join us each month at our community roundtable that are working with us to implement our our child care action, child care strategy and action plan, can can speak to some of that work. And then on the horizon, we have these hopeful things like a federal Liberal Party that's promised universal child care and dropping fees by half by by the end of next year. Um, which will make a tremendous difference to so many people. Um, and um, if we do have a federal election, I hope that all of you will weigh into that conversation. Christia Freeland said, this is going to take a lot of political will uh, because each province needs to negotiate with the federal government for that funding. So, so what I do know in conversations with RMP is that BC is already engaged in those negotiations, which is great because I think we should be the first. Our provincial government has also committed to universal child care programs. So, so let us collectively keep that pressure on our provincial and, and federal representatives. Um, we also know that, that the world of child care is moving from the Ministry of Children and Family Development into the Ministry of Education uh, in starting 2023, I think it is. And so, so that brings changes and also opportunities for us. And, and we're learning of, of some uh, interesting pilot programs uh, in the province around, around how that might work. So, so any of those, any and all of those topics are, uh, we, can, we can tackle tonight. And, and we might not have answers, but we have lots of bright, um, experienced people on the phone. And so we can brainstorm solutions as well. So I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And let's see where people want to take us first. We do have a, a couple of questions that have come into the chat already. Okay. So, uh, Marilyn, if, if you'd like me to kick things off there from Shira, uh, Shira says, can you give us a real breakdown of the problem? Why aren't there enough spots? Is it that there aren't enough early educators because it's too expensive for them to live in Squamish with their wages? Is it that the 12 to 18 month age group is extremely expensive to license? So there's some, um, and then ask for more insight into the process. And I think that might've been really in relation to um, 
perhaps something else that uh, you had mentioned just around the funding the funding piece. So we can start with the, the breakdown of the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, the answer to your two questions is yes. And um, those are both hurdles. Uh, but Sarah, maybe you want to speak to the the how did we get here? You've actually been in Squamish longer than me. And um, and and so I can only speak from 2014, 2012 forward, but. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in terms of um, kind of where we're at and reflecting back on my last 10 to 15 years in Squamish, and, and certainly there are people around the call that um, have been here for a really long time and also have important reflections here. But in terms of the, the number of spaces, I think it, we, as a community, the, the um, increase in spaces has not kept pace with growth over time. Uh, and growth has fluctuated. We've come out, you know, when I first came to Squamish, there was quite a, uh, there was a lot of population growth, but there was also a downturn. So the, the market was um, uh, uh, kind of falling in 2008. Uh, there was a lot of uh, development that was on the table that ended up going into receivership. Um, and so we've been slowly or, you know, like modestly recovering from that. And then now we're in quite a, a strong growth phase. And that growth is, you know, also is coming from, uh, you know, in large part from immigration, um, people moving up from the city. And so we're seeing um, a lot of growth in the community. Uh, the other issues, you know, it's multifaceted and, and housing and affordability is also such a crux issue and something that has come to the fore um, in the last, you know, five, uh, five years. Um, and also in the child care action plan, where because of the cost of living here, it's very hard, uh, especially for, um, for educators that are, are not being paid uh, what they need to be paid um, and, the, and the living wage. And so I think that there's that affordability issue. Um, and then also we have seen a huge growth in our young, like infant toddler age group as well. So, and we, what we understand from educators and from licensing is that those are some of the most expensive, um, uh, that that's the most expensive childcare group to uh, create and maintain care for. Uh, so I think there's, there's a lot of different issues there and we can, uh, through the conversation tonight, we can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, some of the, the policy shifts that have happened and that need to continue to shift um, to help accelerate childcare creation through development. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I'll just go to, um, Karina's got her hand up and then we'll go back to the text questions. Go ahead, Karina. You know, I was wondering if I had to write that down in case I forgot my question. Um, so I um, was at the round table last week and uh, they mentioned that, you know, they, there was also that in-person, remember in-person half before COVID, um, 16 months ago uh, when we also had the same one and I was there as well, um, uh, pregnant at the time, but I was still there. And a couple of things kind of hit me that, okay, so we've got the staffing issue, we've got the staff housing issue and the affordability. Um, but my, my particular daycare that is closing down said it, it was more kind of capex versus opex. So, you know, I think last week you mentioned it was, uh, was it $55,000 to create uh, one childcare space? So that's obviously one issue. And the other one is opex. So yeah, you know, like making sure that you've got enough staff, you know, um, my particular daycare, 
has free staff in the budget and that's what we pay for our, our daily rate. But, you know, she, if one of them goes on vacation or is sick, there's not a pool um, of people and do they start paying, you know, some people overtime. So with the money that's promised by the government and this might be too early to ask, is there any indication whether it's going to be creating the spaces, which is the $55,000, or if it's going to be, you know, reducing it to $10 a day, which I presume is subsidizing um, the childcare? It's a great question, Karina. Um, so I know BC's perspective on this and, and sort of the pillars that they're chasing um, was creating new spaces from, uh, and they've done, they've been trying to do that through the new spaces fund. Um, uh, increasing wages for uh, early childhood educators uh, and then creating training opportunities so that we have um, more people in the field. Um, so those are the three pillars that, that BC has been pursuing and I suspect in their negotiations with the federal government that they'll continue to do that. And then the fourth one, as you said, is reducing the cost. Um, so that will that is the goal also of the federal government. So we can expect that that's, that's a no brainer. There'll be some sort of effort to, to bring costs down. Um, and the, the target is the $10 a day. Um, but you know, that the challenge that, uh, elected officials have been putting to the province, especially in communities where housing is at a premium and and, uh, and also land. And so we've been trying to explain to the minister that meeting her $40,000 per space threshold in a community like ours or Pemberton um, has been very challenging. Uh, and we're, we're not alone in that across the province. So um, we actually had a resolution passed today at the Lower Mainland Local Government Association. So that's all the communities between Pemberton and Hope. Um, that endorsed uh, the resolution from Squamish and Pemberton for the minister to uh, look at that threshold again uh, and create better criteria. So those of us who can't meet it um, still have a shot at creating spaces through that fund. Um, but I don't know if, if anyone else on the call wants to weigh into their thoughts about where they think this is going. The thing is, for me, those things are all interconnected, and so you can't do one without all of the others, and we need to do them simultaneously. So, Absolutely, you know. and you said it perfectly last week when you said, well, you know, really, we don't particularly want to reduce the daily cost to $10 a day, because then everyone who's, you know, the the, the, sub, the um, demand will just triple, quadruple, Who who knows? Um, because of everyone who's currently out of that pool. So as you know, if, if I could, you know, go and go and talk to my my friend <laughs> John Horgan, um, you know, that I, I would say, well, you need to open the spaces first. So the money should be concentrated on opening the spaces and boosting the supply. Well, I suppose you can't open the spaces without having the stuff. So yeah, round and round in circles, right? But um I think reducing the daily cost uh, I think has to come later. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't try and fight to get that immediately. Yeah. It's uh, that's the thing is that what who's modeling what happens when people realize they don't have to pay nannies anymore or they can afford childcare that they couldn't afford before. So they they do see their pathway back into the workforce. And what does that do to our access and, and demand there? So I'm a little bit scared about that, which is why we're putting a lot of pressure on the province to improve their funding for new spaces. Um, uh, this sorry. is Heather Nash um, yeah. from Licensing, and 
Um, I think first and foremost, what we have to address is, is making the ECE field more attractive for people to enter it in the first place. Um, the cost of courses, ECE courses, they're very expensive to get your qualifications. And then when you come out of the program, you're coming out at a very low wage. And I'm not sure, maybe uh, CCRR can uh, weigh in on this, but I think the average wage is somewhere between $18 and $20 an hour um, for qualified staff. And how are you supposed to, um, you know, have housing and a cost of living with that kind of a wage? So I think that's kind of something that we have to address first and foremost. It's a great point, Heather. Yeah, if I may say something, it it has been always mind-boggling me that uh, we educators and childcare providers we have such this enormous responsibility, and we need to fulfill so many different requirements with the district, with Vancouver Coastal Health, fire department. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, early childhood educators are not recognized uh, for the, the amazing service that they do, not only for children, but for families as well. And of course, one of the recognitions that uh, it's very important, it's financial recognition, of course. So uh, always like uh, in my mind, it's, always strikes me that uh, this is happening now and I just wonder you know and I'm sorry to the men on this call if this is uh, a case of uh, gender because uh, there's a lot of women who are educators and are providers so I wonder if men started to come into the profession if this tide would change in the future as it has for nurses that in the 70s or 80s, it was mainly um, for women and now we see men nurses or hairdressers, you know, the shift in career and profession and, uh, and the money will come, you know, as well. So just my two cents. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Rosa, is that sometimes we see professions for women as a calling rather than a profession and, and they are underpaid. So it is, it's so important that that shifts. And I, one of the questions I have, and I know um, Trustee Higgins is here from the school district and, and Phillips here. This, this, I hear that shifting childcare into the Ministry of Education will support or help to encourage higher wages in the childcare field. And is, are, is that anticipated or do you hear that as well from a school district perspective or how does that become part of the conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, so they changed the language in the school act recently to, um, to allow for pre and post care, but the legislation hasn't changed anything else um, beyond that for, for childcare. I think philosophically, um, a lot of school districts believe you know, we'll take them from zero to wherever. Like um, we 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 believe in that. However, the legislation is still um, we are um, the year you turn five and up. Um, so when that changes, um, you know, or if that changes, um, we will we'll definitely rise to that task. But we haven't heard much 
Um, there's a, there's a lot of these types of meetings and and people in my roles uh, across the province meeting to better understand what this language will look like. And I think that it's still a work in progress. Um, so we haven't been given any direction as a school district um, or in, even as a province in the Ministry of Education beyond um, where we stand right now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Philip, just, just out of pure uh, interest, um, what would you say the, the ratio of men to women is in, with teachers? I mean, does that follow Rosa's, you know, previously it used to be mainly a female um, profession, whereas now that more men are joining? Um, to be honest with you, I don't have my numbers, but I, th I think you could, uh, um, I would say uh, at the elementary school level, it is uh, significantly more uh, female teachers to male teachers. And then the, it gets a little bit more diverse in middle school and in high school. But I don't have any statistics for you. I'd just be making them up. Thank you. Um, Sarah, do you have a question in the chat? I, I got punted off WebEx and now my chat's empty, so I can't see anything. Oh, no problem. Yeah, there's one from Andrea and Andrea writes, hello, Karen and all, not sure if you can answer this, but here goes. With the announcement from the federal government about the five-year plan, how will this affect registered, not licensed caregivers? Will they still be able to compete with centers being subsidized? I am considering being an RL RLNR, uh, registered, licensed, not required caregiver, instead of going back to work for many reasons. But I am concerned that I wouldn't be able to make a living if suddenly licensed centers are charging way less than I would have to charge to survive. I can't answer that question, but it's a really good question. Does anybody else want to take a stab at it? Can I hop in here? Please yeah. Um, and Andrea, no, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer, <clears throat> but you, um, I can say that I will, um, myself and my team and I, I, you know, CCRRs all over the province will be advocating hard for the inclusion of the in-home programs, whether it be a registered LNR or a licensed family daycare, because you guys are vital to the system, um, even moving forward, um, when we switch to the Ministry of Ed. So, um, no, I have no direction or any clear path um, that I've been given, but I will, um, yeah, I will be advocating for, for those programs because they are as important as the group centers in town. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Lisa, for weighing in on that. And that's something that I hear too, just families want the choice, you know, some want group care, some want home care, some want a nanny. So how do we make sure that the that this covers uh, the choices that, that people want to make for their children. So I've got a couple of hands up. I've got Sally and then I'll go to Alejandra. Sally, go ahead. Hi, I'm trying to formulate my thoughts. I guess one thought I had from uh, a while back, people were emphasizing the training courses for early childhood educators. Um, I guess I'm most concerned with the supply and access. So, and I kind of think the nannies and nanny share is the most immediate solution to that. So I guess I was wondering about solutions around encouraging more, you know, encouraging more women who are maybe don't have another job and, um, but that that kind of employment might be suitable to them and maybe there's a lower barrier kind of training for them. I don't know, subsidizing first aid kind of courses or 
um, just so that they can get a bare minimum. Um, yeah, to me that that would be would, might provide more immediate relief and, and to the comments around, you know, getting subsidies for registered, not licensed centers. I think that's great, but I, I, I don't know. I, I think even if those centers weren't subsidized, I feel like there'd still be demand <laughs> at those costs. Like we need supply at multiple price points, basically, um, to meet all demand. So anyways, those are just some of my thoughts. It's a great thought. Um... I know one of the things that uh, the federal government's been looking at is um, uh, increasing Im immigration coming out of COVID. And, and so I know like nannies often come from, you know, young women who want to work abroad for a while, that sort of thing. So um, I wonder if that's something I can take back to Patrick in, in terms of sort of, can we, can we loosen those restrictions or, or act actively seek out those um, and designate them for communities where we're seeing a childcare um, where we're underserved? So I'll, I'll, I'll take that question to him. Um, so thank you for that. Karen, it's Heather, um, Heather Nash. Yeah. Um, I'm just pointing out that um, lots of of group child cares are sponsoring uh, people from other countries to come over and work as ECEs. Okay. Thanks, Heather, for adding that. Uh, Alejandra? Hello. Yeah, I'd like to build on previous comment that Heather uh, made about the education of uh, early childhood educators. Uh, because uh, uh, the, like we know that we have this cohort that started in 2019, fall 2019, and it is one-time funding. So and we started with about, I think, 18, 20 students, and we have kept, like some of them had uh, do like fast track, and some of them had entered in, a different, in different points of the program. But I think I'm, I'm not really sure uh, how much uh, people in the like you and, and your team are, are advocating for more funding for another cohort. Like Julia Black, who lives in Squamish and is the ECE coordinator and also the Squamish convener, has played a very fundamental role in getting this funding and making this happen. Uh, but uh, we are completing the second year of the this uh, one time funding and i think it, i will say that it is time for more conversation in order to have like more people interested in getting education in ec like from capilano because if we don't do it so this might end and if a student wants to do early childhood education studies so they might need to register in in north vancouver Right. So I think that things that like that plan makes things much more complicated, different from what we are living right now, because it has been like COVID has in a way helped somehow, like to have students from like online and teaching the courses. That is not ideal, but like we have done it this way. But the first year was very convenient for the majority that uh, were part of the cohort. So I will say I think this. Um, 
advocacy role needs to happen soon because we are ending the second year. Thank you, Alejandra. Sarah, has that been discussed at the monthly roundtable? Not yet, but that's definitely something that uh, I'll bring forward with Julia Black, who's sitting with us as well with CAPU, and and certainly uh, the district has uh, written advocacy letters. Uh, for example, the letter that uh, Mayor Elliott wrote um, to Minister Chen in 2019, but that was more related to uh, bursary funding uh, available to students, but it's all sort of part and parcel of that, that larger um, discussion around um, supporting education. But I, I will definitely make a point of bringing this forward with Julia just to find out what is the best way to um, advocate and, and add our voice um, to that advocacy. Yeah, if, Alejandra, if I can write a letter or make a phone call, I absolutely will to, to see if we can get that funded again. I think it's yeah. so important to have it in the corridor um, for and it helps everybody all the way up uh, to Pemberton. Because I think this should be an initiative that comes from the municipal government, otherwise the university like Capilano is attending so many different issues that they will put in in a list of maybe 100. But like if the municipality like take this as a like major thing, so that will put like some pressure uh, uh, about thinking about this and what is going to happen after the third year. Great, thank you. Uh, uh, go ahead, sir. I was just going to say that uh, I thought it was interesting. Um, Julia uh, at CAPU had also mentioned that there's work um, happening to, uh, especially in the northern part of the the corridor to also um, recruit and work uh, close more closely with indigenous uh, educators and in the community. And so I know those conversations are also happening um, and starting. So that's where we can bring in um, Squamish Nation as well and, and further those discussions uh, to support more um, connections for educators on that front as well. I know people wanted to talk about access and, and, and space. Um, and like, are there any creative solutions uh, in the short term? And, you know, so, um, you know, folks have asked about Brennan Park and, and Brennan Park has been used as a childcare facility in the past. Um, it's currently at capacity, but um, it's not, it's not out of the question. I don't think as long as it, the space still meets the guidelines that are required. Um, and we also have plans um, and grants submitted to redevelop um, Brennan Park, and there's definitely childcare spacing included in that. Um, we're, we have a really dingy old municipal hall. I was on a call the other day and watched two ants crawl across my desk, and it, it needs replacing. And so the idea is also to think about how we would include childcare in a, a new municipal hall structure or um, if we co-located with the library, like how, how that might play out. So, so downtown, um, uh, we're building one fire hall, but we have another fire hall in Tantalus that has to be rebuilt. So, you know, uh, I know, uh, in the city fire halls have put housing on top. Um, I don't know if we'd put a, a childcare on top of a fire hall, but, but maybe more affordable housing. So. If that's possible, we're not sure. It's right near some power lines, so we're not quite sure how that might work out. Um, so we are thinking about this in our own buildings. It's just none of them are are being built quite yet. But 
maybe Sarah, you can speak to how we get access through through rezonings and and that sort of thing, so that people understand how like where we have that opportunity to grab childcare space. For sure, uh, and just to further the um, the point that you made, uh, Mayor Elliott, just around integration and co-location of space in public facilities. So. Uh, the municipality has a real estate master plan. We are, um, as, as mentioned, with any kind of redevelopment, we are looking to integrate space and co-locate, especially in, in recreation facilities and areas that are in, um, in the downtown. Um, and also working with the school district, um, as mentioned before, you know, we have uh, been partnering with the school district and had made application on 2 occasions uh, for funding for new spaces funding to co locate and build a purpose built facility at Valley cliff elementary and we're not successful. Unfortunately, but we're not deterred. Uh, we're waiting for the new spaces funding to come uh, back online and we're also looking at a bit of a pivot, um, you know, in terms of. You know, a lot of the municipalities that were funded successfully in in past rounds or in this last round of new spaces funding, the the needs are deep. Uh, the communities that did see funding, um, a lot of them were renovations uh, in existing facilities, or so either public or in churches or in other types of buildings, um, and not as many like sort of purpose built new centers per se. Um, and also using like more modular strategy to keep costs down. So this is an opportunity for the municipality and the school district to consider kind of, you know, do we want to change tactics and go for sort of more modular um, construction? And is there an opportunity to uh, look and partner with other other groups um, and for facilities in the meantime, while the larger projects like municipal hall expansion um, or um, the Brennan Park expansion are, are, are kind of being lined up. Um, in terms of the private um, private like facilities that are uh, come online through development, so the the key lever for the municipality is through rezonings, um, and so um, with new growth, the expectation um, and the guidelines and the community amenity contribution guidelines that the district have has is that um, through new development, there's an expectation uh, that that growth will help to support the essential services and the amenities that the community needs and that are essential. So childcare is identified as an essential um, and critical amenity. Uh, it's competing, of course, with housing um, and affordable housing. Uh, so in a couple of examples in recent uh, rezonings, the municipality has negotiated uh, both childcare space as well as dedication of affordable housing units uh, for child early childhood educators that are working in the childcare. So that's kind of the nexus that I think, you know, can help to support um, and provide housing for educators. Uh, there are some municipalities that are actively doing this uh, for uh, educators and teachers, firefighters, um, and um, for essential service workers, essentially. Um, and then also on the affordability side, you know, we need to focus in on um, the dedication of space, but also its um, its provision at an affordable rate. So the municipality, um, there, there's an example um, uh, recently with the Garibaldi Springs rezoning, where through the land development agreement, we um, negotiated and uh, 
dedicate had dedicated space that would then be leased out to a nonprofit operator at a nominal rate. So these are the kinds of um, things that that we can do increasingly. And one of the things that we've already identified is to bring back our community amenity contribution policy to revisit it. Um, we've been looking at some leaders in this area um, uh, at a recent UBCM. Um, uh, sort of network and, and presentation, a lot of uh, municipalities that are leaders in this area, including the city of Richmond, um, uh, you know, they have uh, capital reserves for childcare, both for um, for capital funding, but also for operating that can help support um, uh, financial assistance so that they have these, uh, you know, stronger financial tools to help support new space creation, uh, both in public facilities, but then and also um, in private development or in community partnership projects. So we've got some great examples and I think it's sort of the next level where, where we're gonna um, bring this back to council for more discussion and to kind of keep pushing um, and raising the bar around, around this. I'll stop talking now, that was a long answer, sorry. <laughs> this is Heather Nash. Um, I think we also have to explore more flexible types of childcare. We've got, you know, our communities growing and we've got first responders, we've got healthcare workers, we've got all kinds of shift workers. So, you know, other provinces are starting 24 seven type daycares. And, you know, we have to start looking at attracting that type of daycare as well. Great points, Heather, thank you. Sarah, Sarah, excuse me, oh, Lisa here. Um, Sarah, can you just touch on the, the nonprofit piece versus private because um, yeah, that's a barrier, right? We know that there's only one nonprofit in, in Squamish right now. And so in order to um, build these relationships and partnerships with nonprofits, it's just not gonna happen. So can we, is there, is there been conversations around moving to um, partnering with more of the private sector? Yeah, Lisa, thank you for that question. And this came up in the child care roundtable, uh, I believe. And um, I think the first thing is um, often for public institutions, uh, you will see, including the district and, and um, the school district, in that space that's uh, offered out um, at, at a nominal or below market rate um, is done primarily for um, with nonprofits because public institutions and under the local government act or sorry the community charter local governments are prohibited from directly assisting kind of individual businesses so that is why you often see um, or why you see that that nonprofit connection uh, in the child care action planning there was a lot of discussion around um, you know um, uh, with the with the shift and in child care space creation and funding that comes from uh, the province that goes towards um, creation of spaces in a in on public lands and within um, uh, public facilities. There's the expectation um, that that will help to support um, kind of that more universal care and the public um, the shift to public space. Um, and also, it, municipalities are able to control lease rates as well. So. Um, there's more stability and more affordability in space there. Um, we know that um, there are, I actually just got a message this morning from an early childhood, early childhood, oh my gosh, I can't talk, early childhood 
educator in town who is um, has just uh, incorporated as a nonprofit. So has um, made that call and is interested in being able to access uh, in future spaces um, that might be available to nonprofits. But I think at the at the same time, we're open to working um, and supporting childcare space creation that's uh, nonprofit and for profit um, in terms of partnerships. Uh, the municipality also, you know, in some of the space we have put it out to community um, and not just nonprofit, but it, it's part of a public process and kind of like part of a public um, uh, larger public program. So it's not necessarily um, uh, it's not necessarily um, not going to happen, but it just the the main um, the main push is to work with nonprofit, I guess, in public for public sites. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, though, that I think the child care facility in our rezoning on on. Um, over by Brennan Park on on Centennial Way, that was not limited to not for profit. That was just Correct. space created. And then what we did was uh, secure the affordable housing for EC workers through that one. So it's always a negotiation, um, but but we have sort of done some childcare space for nonprofits, so held the price low, but this limitation on public bodies to provide assistance to business makes it trickier when we're working with, um, with private companies. So, so uh, um, Sarah, if you wanna go to the, the questions. You bet, so Shira, um, Shira writes, it seems like a lot of the issues come down to a lack of funding. Going the public route here seems slow in terms of us not being able to solve this issue for families anytime soon, which can have devastating effects as we listed earlier on this call. Um, and then uh, Shira goes on to ask about, have we thought about partnering with a private company? Um, and then further, uh, we could put storage container pop-up daycares at every public school in town. And uh, that's actually, that's a, a great uh, comment and and just having, um, I don't know if Philip Clark is still on the line and wants to maybe talk a little bit about some of the broader review that's happening for the school district in terms of facilities planning. Um, I know we've been engaged together in a lot of discussion and Philip gets tired of me uh, calling him up and asking like, what about this spot? How about this spot? <laughs> Do you need this for, for more portable space for classrooms? Um, so Philip, I don't know if you're interested in maybe um, sharing a little bit more about sort of the broader um, planning that that continues on the part of the school district, and I can speak to the for the district as well. Yeah, for sure. I think our board is uh, is very interested in 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 finding ways to support uh, early years in childcare and uh, and finding available spaces in our building. So we've gone through. Um, um, all of our sites to look at where we are now, where we'll be five years from now, 10 years from now, and, and which, if any, spaces um, will have open classrooms and things like that, that we can work with whomever uh, to retrofit, to change into childcare um, settings. So that the only thing is, is that there's currently one, um, and that's Brackendale, um, and we have just partnered to open up um, a 16-space uh, childcare um, in September for there, um, and uh, working with Sea to Sky, we're going to look to see if we can add another one in that space. But we we are are, are currently full, 
um, that hasn't stopped us from from trying to work with the district of Squamish to add a couple um, that that building at Valley Cliff to support childcare. We've looked at Mamquam before; have been unsuccessful. We, we we you know we can look at that again. It, it is a priority for for the board. Um, it's just um, uh, I wouldn't say it's a complexity. There's just a little bit of figuring out between ourselves as the land provider. Um, and then who owns the portable or the building and then who provides the childcare. Um, and these are the conversations we're very willing to have and, and, and be at, at the table for. Um, and uh, it's just in, in, um, in Squamish right now, we are full and you're going to see in the next few years more of our own portables and things while we wait for building projects. In Whistler and Pemberton, those conversations are also happening. We have a few more spaces up there. Um, so we're also willing to come to the table um <clears throat> there as well but um i wish i had better news i wish we had more spaces uh we don't but we'll continue to kind of um uh you know apply and 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 see what kind of progress we can make so it is a priority for the for the school district as well as as for uh the board of trustees but i i, I guess my question is like can do we have do you have the power as mayor to say, okay, what are the baseball diamonds behind Brendan Park that's like kind of underutilized? Let's just put like 10 portables and we're gonna make like 150 spots. We're gonna like bring a very, very beautiful wage in for ECEs, bring them up from Vancouver or other places in Canada and like create kind of like an emergency childcare act and act on it with like a, a, a short-term six months to one year plan. Is that uh, possible? I wish I had that power this year. I wish. Um, one, I think the the land piece uh, is a potential. Although, if you asked any of all our ball players, they would tell you we don't have enough ball diamonds. Um, but um, but the thing is, is that my budget can't fund can't find or fund the staff. And so that's this is why this becomes this really tangled multi-jurisdictional thing is that you know the school district is is looking at where it can provide space the district is looking where it can provide space but i can't pay the workers like i can't do the funding piece and so someone needs to step in to to run that space and that's where we start running into the, if it's a private provider and it's on public land, then am I providing assistance to business? Mm -hmm. um, that's in the legislation. So then if it's not for profit, well, as of today, I guess Sarah says, now we've got two non-profit non childcare providers. So then um, how do they scale up and staff up? So it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll turn to the community table and, and see like where, where that, monthly discussion goes about like ah we just need spaces but how what's the speed at which we can create them and what is getting in their way is it it is is it us at the district is it is it staff i guess and then that's what shira i think is trying to get at is like what's stopping us from just getting a whole bunch of portables and creating all these spaces um while we build out more permanent facilities what's stopping us is qualified educators yeah that's fine mm. Right, that's that's the crux of it all. We don't have the people; we can't move forward, um, and the people don't have anywhere to live, so they can't they can't come here. That's that's it, right there. We need that Squamish housing housing authority, like Whistler has. 
Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, which is on the agenda actually for next month, <laughs> our, our housing organizational yeah. structure. Um, so, so yeah. And, and so that's the tangled web we live in Shira and I, uh, I'm, I'm so open to ideas. I just can't produce qualified people. Mm -hmm. Even if we had those hundred spots tomorrow, mm -hmm. that would be our limiting factor. And that's why, you know, when I sat down for the mm -hmm. first time at the beginning of my term with the president of CAPU, they have lands up here and they're looking to, to bring a campus to Squamish. And he said, what's, what do you need most? And I said, I want, want your early childhood educator program here not just like as Alejandra said just a you know a yeah. one-off cohort I I want it here full time um so so yeah that's the sticky part I actually think the building part is there's, easier there's no way to rewrite some kind of grant to provide to get provincial or federal funding for for educators here to live, like some kind of subsidy. So they have subsidized housing or build a unit for them or allocate, I don't know, some kind of housing as part of the, the grant, as part of this like emergency act magic wand that you might have. <laughs> uh, um, you, uh, Shira, you let me think about how uh, UBC housing work in terms of like the people who come to be like, the, the people who become a student who live in UBC housing. So has help in, in terms of like how much you pay. So that is the way that I came to Canada in 2004. So my husband was studying um, and then you pay much less uh, money than if you live outside campus. So I think the more like the examples exist, I think we need just to identify them as you are doing and study them and then make proposals. Because I think this is somehow happening in different places in BC. And I think it's about identifying and see if this will work in this particular community with this particular issue of early childhood. Sarah. Hmm. The, uh, the housing and educator nexus is really important. And last week, Lisa and I spoke with a, a local operator who was talking to us about her business model, which is really about recruiting qualified educators. Um, many of her staff are actually coming from Ontario and, um, and then offering uh, dedicated space and housing uh, as part of her business. And so, um, in this case, it's sort of like housing, you know, above the childcare space. And so that's, um, and she's able to provide that stability um, for her staff with housing. Uh, she sets the rates and it's all, you know, she wants to pay them um, uh, very fair wages. And so I think that there are like that, that, um, that kind of setup and where we can work to provide affordable housing that's dedicated and new housing coming on new affordable housing units coming online you know i think we can um also look to solidify that more um specifically in policy and guidelines so that when new development comes before council and our decision makers that we do have a little bit more guidance um, and an expectation around what that looks like 
Um, another, um, another piece is really ensuring that new space that is created um, is licensable. And because I think there's, there's been some growing pains and, and I know Heather uh, witnesses this regularly where, you know, there's new space created, it's dedicated for childcare, but in the build out of it, there's, um, it's, it's not always easy. It's not always um, well aligned with the, the licensing requirements. So, um, you know, advancing and creating better guidelines so that when we negotiate and the spaces that are brought on through private development that it is um, easily and smoothly licensable um, that there's not um, disconnects between the space that's basically developed on the ground when it comes to licensing that space. So yeah, I, there's I see definitely that as another some work thing. to be done there. There are for sure. Um, I just wanted to pipe in as a manager of, of nine childcare programs, I'd have to say that recruitment and retention is my top priority right now. It's definitely the highest priority um, on my list. Um, having the uh, new, the cohort, the EC cohort from CAPU has been an amazing thing for our community and all these new early child educators that are coming into the field. I think the last time that it was offered um, in our community was almost 10 years ago. So I really hope that it's not another 10 years before it's offered again. Um, and, and many of those educators are still in the field now from, from 10 years ago running their own programs. So um, yeah, thank you to CAPU for, for making that happen. And one thing, I mean, we've looked at increasing wages as high as we can go right now. Um, we can't really increase them any higher. So another way, thing that we're looking at is, you know, changing our curriculum and our philosophy and our programming to um, entice ECEs to stay within our program, you know, staying with the times um, of what programming is, is looking like. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's mind boggling, you know, it, was, it never ends. It's what can we do to make this field more enticing for early child educators? Um, the turnover has, in, especially in the last year and a half, has just been incredible and hard to keep up with. So I think that that is a top priority for sure. What's driving retention challenges? Like, why are people turning over? Um, wage is definitely one part of it. Uh, burnout, workload. Um, yeah, for those that are, I would say, like, speak on behalf of qualified early child educators, so, so few of them right now and many new um, students coming into the field that they're being mentors. Not only are they doing their day-to-day -day work, but they're also mentoring and training the new ECEs. And thankfully, um, CAPU has an amazing um, mentorship program. Alejandra is, is one of those mentors um, with the practicum students. Um, but not all of the, the post-secondary programs have that, you know, like Pacific Rim or Northern Lights don't necessarily have that same um, mentorship support for their students going into the field. So, uh, yeah, I would say burnout and, and workload as well. I just, um, I know that uh, Laura Prosco is on the phone and, and she has an older child. And I think one of the opportunities, Laura, as... Um, Childcare moves into the Ministry of Education is also figuring out how the district can uh, partner with with the school district to use our own facilities um, and figuring out a way to move children into places like Brennan Park for after school care or or two programs. Um, 
or or bringing our staff on potentially onto site so i think there's opportunities for that to increase the after school care program um and and those conversations will have to begin in the next little while uh, but we want to be part of that solution as well uh, you know we have lots of parents whose work days are very short because they have to be available by three o'clock to pick kids up because they can't get their kids into after school care uh or or doing you know the negotiation with their friends parents about who can pick up which kid on which day and drop them off at which activity uh, one of the blessings of COVID and, and canceling activities has really brought a lot of sanity to a lot of us with older kids because they've been doing less after school, um, which is maybe not as fun for them, but it's been a saving grace for me. Um, so I think those solutions have to come too because we know there's a lack of access for after school and before school care. And as I think it was Heather said earlier, we have to start looking at the 24-7 uh, child care model. Uh, for shift workers. We have another uh, comment and question. I guess maybe it's more of a comment. Um, Shira writes, I think it would be important to collect da the data on how many families currently don't have spots or are taking their children to daycares in other cities, have their parents, nannies, et cetera, leaving careers, moving out of town to better understand just how dire the situation is. And um, I just wanted to quickly jump in and speak to the data side. So, um, uh, See the Sky Community Services um, retained Spark BC back in 2018 and did the first child care needs assessment and strategy. And so, um, the last that was the last uh, family um, assessment, I guess, based on the survey that was done. And so that was a, that was a little while ago now. And so I think, um, you know, in, in our childcare kind of, um, partner table discussions, we have been talking about, um, up, you know, the, the effort to put into update data collection around the need. I mean, I think anecdotally, and because we, we know how, um, long the wait lists are and that, families and parents are are reaching out to, to explain how bad the situation is um we know we know it's not um we know it's it's profoundly um problematic in the community um so some conversation is happening about you know updating an assessment um around needs and then also with the ccrr there's um some survey work ahead um, for on the operator side as well, just around fees. So Lisa and I um, have been working on that. And Lisa, I don't know if you want to maybe speak to that piece, but I think data is is really important for ongoing planning, just so we keep um, connected to the issues and, and how deep the needs are. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we've Sarah and I have collectively created a really um, in depth. Uh, survey around uh, fees and wait lists and um, lease versus rent and how much and commercial space and in home. So it's going to be a real, a real, hopefully a real big picture of what's actually happening on the ground um, in terms of the operator side of things, which I think we, we need to know that. So, yeah, it'll be coming out soon. Yeah. And also, I'd be very happy to help if you want me to create surveys for the to the mom and dads to understand that level as well as the ECEs. I do a lot of user research studies at work. It's no problem for me to help out. Just reach out. That's fantastic. Thank you. 
Thanks, Shira. So it's three minutes to eight, and um, I, I want to draw this to a close. Are there any last questions, uh, Sarah, on the chat? That we didn't get to? Uh, no last questions. Uh, Sally see. wrote that she's in support of the zoning policy for ECE okay. provider affordable housing. And Cheryl, your hands up. Oh, it's okay. I spoke. You spoke. Okay. Yeah. That, that's, an, that's an old hand. Um, okay. I, you know, Sarah's contact information is, is on our website. Um, so is mine. Everybody knows how to find me. Um, and so we'll keep the conversation going. And, and obviously, um, you know, Sarah is meeting with the round table once a month. So once a month, I feel like it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I didn't hold this event because like, I was trying to tick a box and I feel like I've fulfilled my, my duty. This is an ongoing issue and we need to keep talking about it. And so drop me a line. If you have an idea, um, uh, drop Sarah a line. Uh, I wrote down a number of things that I need to explore here around, um, trying to increase access. Um, we do have um, the opportunity to keep chipping away at this, and and it's hard because there's there's so many things that are connected to each other. But um, I won't put this one down. It's so important. Um, it's fundamentally important to our community, but also it disproportionately affects the women in our community, and that breaks my heart. And uh, I think Shannon captured that so well for us at the beginning of the evening. So. Uh, I really appreciate everyone's time. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And thank you to my my uh, colleagues of the district who supported us with the technology and, and hosting tonight. And um, yeah, I hope that you will keep the conversation going in community, in your organizations and with us, um, because we do really want to try and solve this problem. And I, and I realize we didn't come up with any quick solutions tonight, but that doesn't mean they're not just out there or just be on our reach and if we keep talking if we keep working together that that we can find them and and i think we have to remain hopeful because that is our only option and the one thing i know about this community is it is really good at finding solutions um, and it does that by working together so thank you all for being here tonight and and please never hesitate to reach out to us uh, with your thoughts or criticisms or ideas will take it all if it helps us get further down this road. So thank you all very much.